I'm James Ryan Smith. Welcome to the Things Above podcast. You're listening to episode 34. If you missed the pilot episode or this is your first time listening, this is a podcast for what I call Mind Discipleship. It's a podcast for those who want to set their minds and hearts on things above. That's where the name of the podcast comes from, Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2. Set your minds and hearts on things above. I believe the most important aspect of our discipleship is mind discipleship. Because what happens in our minds influences our emotions, our actions, our choices, and our behavior. So we need to set our minds and our thoughts on things above each and every day. Today's thought from above is this, God is a God of second chances. Sometimes when I read the Bible, I am caught by surprise, even though I've read most of the Bible many times over. I'm still caught off guard when I come across a passage that doesn't seem to fit. There's a fancy word for something in a discussion that does not naturally follow. It's a Latin phrase called a non sequitur. A non sequitur is a conclusion or a statement that does not logically follow from the previous argument or statement. An example of a non sequitur would be if you ask someone what the weather was like outside and they said, two o'clock. You went, what? We find what appears to be a non sequitur in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. The chapter begins with two stories about seemingly innocent people who die, one because of what we might call a natural disaster and the other because of a man-made or human-caused disaster, namely the unjust slaughter of people. But let me read the passage for you, because the passage deals with the age-old, unanswerable, mysterious question of why bad things happen to good people, or conversely, why good things happen to bad people. In other words, does God mete out punishment according to our behavior? Well, let's listen to Luke 13. At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way that they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those eighteen who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. There are two things that I want to point out from this passage. First, Jesus is raising the age-old questions. Does God cause suffering? This is an age-old question, as I said. It goes all the way back to the book of Job and probably even further. When something bad happens to people, we instinctively want to know if God caused it to happen. In this passage, there are two instances, one a natural disaster in which a tower fell killing 18 people. In the other, a group of people who are seemingly innocent were massacred in the temple. Now, this question has plagued humans for a long time, as long as we know. Different religions have provided different answers to this question. But as a Christian, all of my answers come from Jesus, who is the exact representation of what God is like. As I often say, the only answer to the question, what is God like, is Jesus. Now, in both of these cases, Jesus rejects the narrative that the people did something to cause their suffering. 
As some of you may know, my wife and I had a child born with birth defects. And some, I assume, well-meaning Christians asked me if we'd done something to cause it. I'm happy to say I have moved past this understanding of God, and I stand in solidarity with Jesus. But the second thing worth pointing out about this passage is that in each instance, after Jesus had denied that God caused it, he says this, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. At first, this sounds alarming. It's as if Jesus is saying, No, they did nothing to cause their suffering, but unless you shape up, you're going to suffer just like they did. Now, I just put a lot of words in Jesus' mouth, but I imagine many people who read it, or many of you listening, thought something very similar. This cryptic response makes sense only in light of the parable which follows. And even then, it's a little strange at first, but let me read the parable that follows what we've just read, beginning in verse 6. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year, until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. While it seems like a non sequitur, it actually tells a deep truth about God and about human life. I have a story from my own life that may help us understand this. When I was in seminary, I was required to go through a program called Clinical Pastoral Education. And yes, it was as bad as the name sounds. For a summer, I was assigned to work with people in a retirement home as a chaplain. That part was not so bad. But I also had to go through weekly grilling from my two supervisors who were charged with seeing if I was mentally fit for ministry. That was the not-so-fun part. But back to the fun part. I met a lot of interesting people, and one of them was named Ben. Ben asked if I would meet with him weekly to chat in his room. Though Ben was not a Christian, which he told me, he was a lonely older man who desired company in his final years. He was not interested in God talk, and I agreed. Each week I listened to Ben talk about his life, and he was probably about 86 at the time. Ben told me about his very successful life as a businessman, how he'd accrued a lot of wealth, and he was very rich at one point and very powerful back in his younger days. He'd been married. He had a daughter. But he was unfaithful in his marriage, and he had many mistresses. His wife eventually left him. His business dealings, he was really honest, were pretty shady. And... He was not shy in sharing that he bent a lot of rules in the favor of his own business. As I said, eventually his wife left him, and his daughter even would no longer speak to him at one point. His empire, if you will, collapsed, and his friends abandoned him. It had all come to ruin. And now, here he was in the twilight years of his life, and he said, I'm all alone. All he had, he said to me, was, well, me. He had built his life on sand— in my view, as Jesus said, and eventually it came to ruin. Before my summer ended with Ben, during one of our conversations, I ended up telling Ben that the only way to live, in my view, was to follow Jesus. Actually, Ben didn't offer much resistance. Jesus, he said, was brilliant. But he told me that it was too late for him. He was, in his view, beyond redemption. 
I explained that redemption is God's favorite activity. Over the next few weeks, we read the Gospels together, which I was surprised he wanted to do. And I emphasized that God's mercy and forgiveness was crucial to who God was. By the end of the summer, it was time for me to leave. Ben gave me a wonderful gift. It was a rare copy of an old book he had treasured. He also showed me a letter he wanted to send to his daughter. He wanted me to read it, and he asked me my opinion. I read the letter, and in this, this letter, he asked his daughter for forgiveness. Well, I left that summer, and for many, many months, even years, I, I rarely thought of Ben. Occasionally I did, but by and large, a lot of time went by. Many years later, his daughter wrote me a letter, and in this letter, she told me that Ben had died. But she wrote me that she and her dad had reconciled. And that, to my shock, here it comes. Ben gave his life to Christ. Well, Ben didn't live a radiant life for many, many years and decades. According to his daughter, he did die a radiant death. Ben reminds me that none of us are past redemption. The future is like wet cement, pliable and smooth, and ready to be affected by what we do with the time we have. Each day, Jesus is saying to us, Come, follow me. If we say yes, we can be sure it will be good. Our God is a God of second chances, and the Bible illustrates that. Abraham, I mean, way back in the beginning, he was a liar, but he came around. Jacob, he was a trickster, but he eventually was the father of Israel. David was a murderer and an adulterer, but he became a man after God's own heart. The New Testament is full of people in need of second chances. Mary Magdalene, Zacchaeus, the woman caught in adultery, Saul of Tarsus. Even Peter, who denied Jesus, was given a second, actually a third chance. We are all in need of second, third, or even fortieth chances. God is a God of grace, and we talk a lot about God's grace in this podcast. Grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve. But our God is also a God of mercy. Mercy is when God does not give us what we do deserve. That bears repeating. Mercy is when God does not give us what we do deserve. Our God is a God of grace, and our God is a God of mercy. And we all need a lot of grace, and we all need a lot of mercy, do we not? I hope you join me next week for episode 35. Until then, You can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast at ApprenticeInstitute.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And you can also subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope, as always, is that one day if you are asked, hey, what's on your mind? Your answer will be, things above.